Good day, and welcome to Free to Be Faithful. I'm moderator Kip Allen. Free to Be Faithful is a religious education and awareness program created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in response to increasing governmental incursions into religious life. The national elections were held this month. What did the results mean for the faithful? Washington Observer and Focus on the Family Vice President Tim Gigline and I analyze the election on today's Free to Be Faithful. Tim Gigline, my friend, we have had one heck of a roller coaster election. I don't ever recall seeing anything like this in the past. You know, I think, Kip, uh, that not only were all of the major polls and surveys and pundits wrong, but I think that when uh, the smoke and the proverbial fog begin to lift, I think what we're seeing um, is a perfectly divided country, no blue tsunami, no landslide, uh, a deeply, deeply contested presidential election, major gains uh, for the uh, GOP in the House. And I think it's fair to say that we are witnessing in Georgia with two special runoff elections on exactly the same day, the 5th of January, a real run for the roses. Uh, Because if the Democrats uh, win both of those seats uh, with a potential of a vice president of the same party, uh, they will have a majority vote status in the U.S. Senate. However, uh, if only one Republican of those two runoff seats wins, uh, the Republicans will retain uh, a majority in the Senate. And this all matters for one major reason, because any president who does not have his own same majority party in the Senate naturally finds it very difficult to achieve most of, many of, the most important policy and personnel decisions uh, that he seeks. So we are facing uh, a major situation far beyond the presidential election in the state of Georgia with those two runoffs on exactly the same day in early January. Yeah, I've been following that and largely for the same reason that you just said. Uh, As long as the Senate is not in the Democratic hands, there is a break. There is a, a, a check on, uh, on the Democrats pushing too, too uh, radical an agenda. And their agenda is indeed radical. I think uh, they've even said that uh, the Biden the Biden administration, if it's sworn in, would be the most, quote, progressive, unquote, in history, with the possible exception of FDR. I think that's right. There uh, are two major factions within the contemporary Democratic Party. There is a more establishment uh, part of this party from which uh, Vice President Biden comes. Um, It's very progressive and it's far more progressive than any other Democratic Party establishment, uh, you know, in its contemporary history. However, for as progressive as it is, um, it does not hold a candle uh, to the kind of neo-Marxist wing of many of uh, the most enthusiastic, uh, deeply blue, deeply progressive elements of that party. In other words, there is a split 
between the Democratic Party's left and its far left. And this is a very important distinction. Uh, This is not a conservative analysis. It's actually a liberal analysis from the New York Times, which says that there is a civil war going on within the Democratic Party. Clearly, it did not choose Bernie Sanders to be the top of the ticket. It chose uh, Joe Biden. There is a demonstrable difference in their tone, in their temperament, and in the way that they choose to negotiate politics. But it should not be mistaken, Kip, uh, for a kind of moderate versus uh, progressive split. That really is not what is it, what it is. There's a lot uh, that Bernie Sanders and that Joe Biden have completely in common. And of course, uh, with uh, Kamala Harris, as the uh, potential vice president of the United States, uh, you have the most liberal United States senator who is potentially uh, coming to the White House. So I, I think that the that the civil war that the New York Times is talking about uh, within the Democratic Party is a very substantial reality going into a possible Biden-Harris presidency. Well, I agree with you that the... Uh that there is the split between the in uh, the Democrats between the far left and the left. What uh, pleasantly surprised me was that the Republican side really didn't go through this. Out there, there were all the uh, predictions about Trumpism and that that would tear the Republican Party apart. Yet, what we saw is a very very narrow vote. Uh, with the presidency, and remember, so many of the pundits were predicting a landslide for Biden. And as I said, it was a very, very narrow election, and it's still not decided. And the Republicans made enormous games in the House of Representatives, which came as a huge surprise to the pundits. And it looks like they may well hold on to the Senate. Uh, We also saw the same thing in uh, state legislatures and gubernatorial races. The Republicans actually made some very strong games. What does this say? Uh, Well, first, I love the delineation that you've made, and it's worth our uh, kind of uh, translating uh, and then synthesizing what you've just said uh, in in a way that really puts into perspective where we're at in American partisan uh, politics. Uh, the, The largest historical question regarding either a second Trump administration Uh, or a single administration and going forward for the GOP is does Trumpism have a lasting impact or does it end uh, potentially uh, in one term? And frankly, uh, Kip, given what you've said, I believe that Trumpism has legs. A more populist, nationalist GOP in my view, is not going away simply because uh, President Trump, uh, and again, we don't know yet, but simply because President Trump may have only one term. I mean, unlike George H.W. Bush, who was the last uh, you know, sitting Republican president uh, you know, to lose, um, uh, you know, there, there were no what we would call uh, George H.W. Bush legs or contrails that definitively shaped uh, the Republican Party in a winning fashion thereafter. That's not true with Donald Trump. 
uh, Donald Trump actually uh, may have lost the election. We don't know yet, but he clearly won the narrative. Uh, This is the most uh, pan-ethnic Republican Party since Richard Nixon. Uh, There were places in Texas, California, and Florida three of our most populous and most important states where President Trump had gigantic coattails. You mentioned uh, the House of Representatives. We know that there will be 17 new GOP women uh, there. Uh, Every single seat that flipped from Democrat to Republican in the most recent election uh, was done by a GOP woman. That is absolutely dramatic. We will have 150 women already uh, in the legislative branch, which is a a very high mark. So I I think it is fair to say that with the majority of state legislatures remaining GOP controlled, the majority of uh, governorships remain uh, controlled by the GOP. Uh, potentially the Senate after January remaining uh, in the GOP and very large margins in the House. Remember uh, that uh, even if it is Speaker Pelosi again, she will potentially preside over the smallest majority uh, in the House of Representatives since 2002. So it's very difficult to look at uh, an electoral map, blue and red, Uh, coastal versus uh, Midwest or South, and to say that somehow this was in any manner a wash for the GOP. It was quite the opposite. Uh, And I think it is probable that if Joe Biden becomes the next president of the United States, given the civil war that you and I have discussed within his own party, uh, relatively uh, small to no gains uh, in the Senate, Uh, and uh, certainly no gains in the House, it's very difficult to see that somehow he comes into the presidency uh, as a transformative figure with a mandate. I think that it is fair to say already that that conclusively is not the case. Well, another aspect of the election that really struck me is uh, how many of the new uh, people going into the House are either female or people of color. Also, the fact that the number, uh, the percentage of African Americans who supported Biden went way down this this year, this as opposed to the last election. So the uh, the message is is resonating with both women and minorities. It absolutely is, and you know, if I had to categorize or synthesize uh, a Kip, the first uh, four uh, points that you have made <clears throat> so well, I, I, I would I would put it thus: I would say that that on the whole, that it was a deceptively good election for the Republicans. Obviously, with the Senate likely remaining, uh, you know, with the GOP controlled but perhaps even more so because of the results uh, from the state legislatures ahead of redistricting, where the minority vote that you're talking about was very important to the GOP remaining the majority in those states. You know, you will recall um, from one of our uh, early discussions many years ago that the Obama operation spent a lot of time and money trying to reverse that and they failed 
And this to me is probably of greater long-term importance and impact than losing the White House for four years. Uh, you know, the, the surprising House results that we talked about were heartening, uh, you know, for those of us who are pro-life and, and pro-religious liberty. And on top of that, and I want to go to this question of, 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 of ethnic groups and minority support for the GOP, it is definitively because of their support for Trump-Pence that the presidential election was that close. In other words, despite a pandemic, a very tough economy, impeachment, and almost every single cultural institution in the United States working you know, actively against him, Donald Trump nearly pulled it off again. And this is not nothing. This is, this is how presidential uh, histories are written. And one thing to say about the third point that you raised, Kip, and I think this will be of benefit to the listeners, Regarding the president, it is very hard, and in fact, I would say almost delusional, not to see that he has strengthened the GOP uh, in a number of ways. Just look at the Democrat, uh, the demographic voting shifts that you talked about. Latino, African-American, Jewish American, Muslim American, they all voted in greater numbers for him than previous Republicans in the contemporary presidency. So I, I don't fear that somehow those new voters who came out for Donald Trump uh, and are not likely to remain with him will somehow uh, you know, be gone with the wind. My sense is that they responded to his personality, to his bravado, to his outrageousness. Uh, you know, in other words, Kip, in his way of communicating. And you can reason that the economy prior to this year probably also played a significant part. So I'm just not sure how you retain these voters and build on the foundation that Trump leaves. Of course, part of this strengthening of the party involves forcing it to change and to move beyond some ideas and values that a lot of us embraced for a long time when we first realized that we were conservatives. And that will that will be very important going forward. Well, it certainly will. And uh, I just look at, for example, this past weekend, 300,000 Trump supporters marched in Washington, D.C., 300,000 way beyond the expectation of anyone. And this for a candidate who is supposedly lost? Yeah, uh, you know, here in Washington, uh, here in the swamp, uh, that was a remarkable thing to see. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people from every corner of America pouring into Freedom Plaza on a beautiful autumnal day, many of them carrying flags, uh, the Statue of Liberty. It was about patriotism. Uh, it was about, uh, you know, love of country. Uh, and obviously, they're very strong support for the president and the vice president. And in fact, uh, the, the president's motorcade drove by uh, Freedom Plaza. But I think it's important to say, Kip, that as soon as the sun went down, uh, the thugs came out. Uh, you know, elderly people, men and women were targeted with uh, with with all kinds of, um, uh, of violence. 
Uh, we had stabbings. We had uh, arrests of, I think, two uh, dozen uh, people. Uh, the Washington police had to get in the middle of this uh, melee. And, uh, and, and the sheer fact that, you know, not the day of the election or the day after, but in the most contested presidential election since Bush v. Gore in 2000, uh, you had thousands of people uh, coming to show their, their very strong support for the president. This is, uh, this is a, a very important and, in one sense, even dramatic development. Well, Tim, one thing I look at as a media person uh, is I would say that the big loser in this election is the American media. I mean, they dropped the mask this time. They're, but anything from the, from social media to the uh, main networks, they have dropped the mask. They are no longer objective. They don't pretend to be. They are essentially now a wing of the Democratic Party. And they're really not uh, not disputing that anymore. I mean, I look at what stories they're promoting, what stories they aren't promoting. You mentioned about the uh, violence that uh, occurred at that evening. How many headlines have you seen right now blaming the Trump supporters for it? I've seen quite a few. You know, I, I do think, uh, as per our conversation a few months ago, <clears throat> that we have lived through the end of American journalism uh, as American journalism was understood uh, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, that even though the American elite media have always been liberal, uh, they've always been left of center, uh, the major newspapers, uh, with the exception of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, uh, the main networks uh, long before the creation of Fox, uh, you know, the, the, the central American media have always been, uh, been, been to the left. However, there has always been an institutional safeguard. And the institutional safeguard, by and large, has been, if this is reporting, let's call it reporting, that it's supposed to be objective, or at least as close to objective um, as, uh, as a person or an editor or a writer or producer or correspondent, um, you know, is supposed to, to fashion his narrative. Uh, and then if it's opinion or commentary or editorial, then we'll put it over there. But what we have witnessed, as you have said so accurately, uh, is really the end of those bright lines. Now we have returned, uh, frankly, to an early form of American journalism, the kind that was so common in the revolutionary uh, period of our history, uh, the so-called uh, you know, party press. And now, overwhelmingly, with very few exceptions, the elite national media have taken down this wall between reporting and opinion, and they've meshed it all into one. Well, not just that, it's oppression as well. Uh, you know, look at the, uh, you know, we talk about social media. Now, technically, it is not censorship because it doesn't come from the government, but it is definitely suppressing points of view that they don't like. And they mislabel it as, say, uh, oh, this is fake news or this is misleading. Uh, I even saw one the other day where the, uh, it was not, that uh, had a notation on it saying, yeah, this is, it's accurate, but it's misleading. Yeah, may, may, may I say um, this <clears throat> topic 
in my view, is the single most concerning topic in 21st century America. And it is far transcending politics, but it has now become a central part of many of our leading cultural institutions, uh, the colleges and universities, the media, the public schools, uh, uh, as, as, as we have talked about on other programs, the law and the legal profession, the permanent bureaucracy in Washington and in many of our uh, states. And the way that I would define that, Kip, is, uh, is functionally uh, being at odds with the First Amendment, <clears throat> the, 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 the right to free speech, uh, the right uh, to gather, the right uh, you know, to, to assemble, uh, the right to dissent. You know, what, what has happened functionally is we are living in a period of time where a large percentage of the, uh, of the, of the elites are extremely uncomfortable with the United States Constitution and with the idea of a constitutional republic. And so when many of these elites routinely talk about constitutional reform, you know, of getting rid of the electoral college, about how we might modify some of the amendments in our constitution, uh, you know, taking odds, uh, strong odds uh, against, uh, you know, the idea that America was born in 1776, uh, the dismantlement of many of our national symbols and, uh, and, and icons uh, and statues which tell the story of America. This is all of a piece. Um, and I think most uh, concerning for Christians during this pandemic, the idea that the church should be supine, that the church uh, should willingly uh, decide uh, that it should not meet, it should not gather uh, the strength of some governors uh, and mayors to crack down specifically on churches, uh, you know, who choose to gather and to worship God. These are all part of the same thing. And I think that the part of it that's reflected in the media that you raised a moment ago, I think is just one part of this many-headed hydra that we are facing um, as Christians living in the United States. That's a good analogy, the hydra analogy. Something I did want to uh, to uh, suggest to you uh, or ask, get your opinion on is uh, the Biden people have now called for unity. When unity means essentially, if you don't agree with me, shut up. <laughs> I think that's what they're pushing. And especially when I look at the last four years where the Democrats never accepted the Trump administration as legitimate, how should we respond? Should Biden actually be elected? Should Biden actually take office? Should we react like the Democrats did? Or what? I, I'm, I'm curious. Well, you know, I, I believe that our first duty as Christian citizens is to vote. <clears throat> and uh, I was heartened by the fact that in this will of the wisp election, which seems to be very close, uh, that, um, that, 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 that Christians in large numbers appear to have voted. So I think that that's important. And I believe very strongly that civility, magnanimity, grace uh, in the public square is absolutely central 
Uh, I, I do believe that we have a call as Christians <clears throat> to be Christ-like in the public square. Uh, however, and I think this is an important distinction, you know, when Christians are called into the public square and called to be civil and gracious and magnanimous, that is too often mistaken with, uh, you know, you're being invited into, uh, you know, into the public square to kind of be the doormat. You're invited into the public square, uh, but don't say anything. You're invited into the public square, but don't 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 really share your opinion. Uh, I mean, I think that these uh, that these ideals uh, are are uh, are are very much in opposition to one another. We are called to engage. We are called to speak up. We are uh, called to speak out. We are called to share the gospel. Uh, we are uh, called. Uh, you know, to engage for our worldview. And so I believe it's quite possible. And in part, I think it's part of our vocation to step into the public square and to not view people who disagree with us as our enemy, uh, but to treat them as Christ would treat them. I do believe that very strongly. Um, it, 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 it is jarring. And we have to confess that as Christians. It's jarring uh, for many of us to look at the way that the president and the vice president, many members of his cabinet and administration, uh, members of the House, the Senate, the governorships, uh, to look at the way that many of these people have been treated. And I think by some, uh, you know, of the, the of the most pointed comments, you know, viewing the president as kind of an enemy of the state. Uh, and then we have an election to say, well, now now we need to come together. You know, I, I think that that there are not a few uh, people in America, you know, who see that as uh, as rather as rather hypocritical. So I, I think we have to be careful about the way that we negotiate uh, this whole thing. I, I really do. Well, one thing that really bothers me is over and above the attacks on the administration and the top supporters is the action, the, the hatred and the vitriol I have seen directed against his uh, supporters in the street. You know, if, if you're a Trump supporter, well, you're a racist. If you're a Trump supporter, well, you're a misogynist. You're a Nazi. How many times have we run into this and how often must we turn the cheek? You know, this, uh, this topic uh, of civility in the public square, uh, this issue of, of a time of mass polarization, polarities, toxicity, uh, you know, it is extraordinarily difficult, um, you know, as, as Bible-believing Christians, uh, you know, to stand into the public square and to listen to the vitriol the harshness that is directed toward people who share our same uh, worldview. My, 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 my friends at the Colson Center, uh, you know, I think put it, uh, put it very well when, uh, when they said that perhaps the most helpful framework uh, you know, in wrestling Kip with these moral issues comes from T.S. Eliot which is to say, before we can know what to do with something, we must know what that something is for. And I think that what we are uh, viewing is a remaking of our country, our culture, and our civilization. Thank you very much, Tim. I appreciate your insight. You've been listening to Free to be Faithful, produced by Worldwide KFUO. 
the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for listening and supporting Free to Be Faithful on Worldwide KFUO.